It's always good to be with you again. As David said, we've been doing this for a while. Many, many uh, years uh, in this church, and uh, I always look forward to the opportunity to come to Westminster. I am going to do something a little different in this series of talks than the announced subject. Um, I had an exchange with uh, people responsible for the program, uh, and I pr proposed one thing, and somehow the translation didn't quite work because <laughs> they said I was going to be talking about something else. Uh, but I don't think you're going to be here under false pretenses. I hope not. Um, here's, the, here's the distinction. Uh, the, the announced topic has to do with uh, the legacy of the Reformation, the legacy of the Reformation in our own time. And what I will be talking about is relevant to that. Uh, but I'm not going to be focusing directly on that. I'm going to be talking about what happened in the Reformation. And I've been doing this now all of 2017 in various churches, uh, and more and more, my conviction has been that before we start talking about the legacy, we need to have a better understanding of what actually happened, because it's a complicated story, and there are a lot of things that people have in their minds, some of which are accurate, and some of which, if I could say this diplomatically, aren't. So let me uh, uh, talk today and in the three weeks to come about what happened in the Reformation with one very specific um, motif. I'm going to tell sort of a part of the story. It's, it is, after all, the kind of story that really warrants a whole academic course uh, or more. Uh, we've had a flood of books on this topic come out in 2017. They're not short books, as a general rule. They are tomes, you know. And the, and the author very often will say, and I'm just going to tell a little part of the story 500 pages later. Uh, at any rate, um, Here's why the Reformation uh, was at least 150 years in the unfolding. 150 years. 150 years of turbulence not unlike the Middle East today. That's what Western Europe was experiencing. The iconic date for the start of the Reformation is, as we all know, 1517. That's why we're having this commemoration this year, 500th anniversary. I did not use the word celebration. Commemoration uh, of this 500th anniversary. It starts in 1517, sort of. I'll challenge that a bit in just a second. And then it goes on and on and on and on for about 150 years. Uh, I use the date 1689 as the closure date because that's finally when, which is particularly important for us in the English-speaking world, the issue gets resolved. Uh, with uh, all that struggle over the Puritans and the control of the monarchy, which side is going to do it, and bloody civil wars and all of that, it finally comes to an end. 1689. And then, and by the way, that's a prelude to the American experience in very important ways. Uh, but by the next century, the 1700s, it's, and it's very interesting to think about this historically, people fighting and angry, and then a sort of calm comes over. And people start thinking about other things. Isn't that interesting? There are these rather dramatic shifts that take place in mood. But until 1689, that's a, better than 150 years. So it's a long, complicated story involving multiple generations, several different generations. They pass it on to their kids, one generation after another. So it's a long, complicated story. I'm going to talk about a part of the story that has uh, not gotten 
adequate attention until recently, and now it's a big theme in this commemorative year, and that is the impact of the printing press. Huge part of the story, which is fascinating to us today because that was the new technology. That was the new technology. And, of course, we're living through another one of these great technological revolutions, especially with regard to the way people express themselves, the way people communicate. Well, they were living through that kind of thing. And there's an intimate connection between the feeling of the effects, popular effects, of this new technology, the printing press, and the Protestant Reformation. I'm going to talk about that by focusing on four different texts, just, just a selection. If you go to our website, by the way, the Reformed Institute website, you will see a selection of readings of things that you might look at, primary and secondary. And we list just a few, a very small sample of things that you might want to look at if you were interested in sort of getting some familiarity with texts. I'm going to talk today about Martin Luther and one of his most famous writings, one of his most famous writings, uh, bar none. And that is a work called The Freedom of the Christian Man. That was the way it was originally phrased. Now it's called The Freedom of the Christian, for maybe obvious reasons. But it used to be called, Martin Luther himself called it The Freedom of the Christian Man. I'll say in a moment why it's so consequential. But that was something that he produced that is just pivotal to understanding the Reformation. By the way, if you do a theology course over at Georgetown, that's the text that you will be given to understand us, us Protestants. You know, I kid you not, that, that one text. You know, if you're in, a, in an introductory course in theology, that's probably, if you, if you have one, if, if, the, if the instructor selects one, and keep in mind 50% of our student body still are Roman Catholics, and you know, many of them have got a, maybe a Protestant roommate, but still, what, what is a Protestant? Uh, well, a Protestant is, in the minds of students who walk out of that class, people who think like that short little essay. I kid you not. That's their view of us, and that's one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why it's so important. Next week, I'll be talking about something which will, if you've got hair, will curl it. <laughs> it will curl your hair. Uh, Thomas Munzer. Uh, Thomas Munzer, a famous uh, clergyman, one of these renegade clergymen who left the Roman Catholic Church, who is a proponent of the Christian use of violence. Rise up, men. And it's addressed to men. You know, come on, guys, get that sword out. Onward, Christian soldiers. You will hear about that and read some of the text next week. I'll. I'm introducing that because it was a very important document, less read today, but that's a big, and it's, it's a kind of marker of what was going on in the early decades of the, of the Reformation. Then I will talk, I couldn't avoid, couldn't miss the opportunity to talk in the next week about John Calvin's Institutes. I will tell you the story of John Calvin's Institutes. I will tell you why it was written, why it was so important. That's the third week. And then in the final one, the kind of conclusion of it all, I'm going to talk about the Geneva Bible. Uh, keep in mind that this printing press thing, above all, had its impact because it was the instrument through which people finally got access to the Bible. Revolutionary development. You know that, but I'm going to talk about it at some length, and how the Geneva Bible, 
not the King James, but the Geneva Bible, came to be so important, especially for our particular variant of Protestantism. That'll be the final one. So you've got, four, and I hope you see four different kinds of texts, uh, an essay, a sermon, which was quickly printed and then distributed widely, then this tome, you know, it started out 200 pages, John Calvin, short little work, he said, little, little, short little work, just a little pamphlet, 200 pages, and it wound up when it was finished, 1,600 pages, uh, at least in English. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll, I'm getting ahead, way ahead of myself. And then finally, of course, the Geneva Bible, which I'll bring a copy of the English, uh, of, the, of the sort of, there are versions of it available now, and it is, talk about tomes. You know, we'll wheel it in here uh, in, the, in the final session. Uh, nobody to folk hero, for first point. By the way, if you're interested in what I'm saying today, uh, there is a wonderful book on the subject uh, that has come out, uh, I guess, the last year and a half, called Brand Luther. Uh, it's written by a very good historian, and it's on the topic I'm going to be discussing today. Martin Luther posts those famous theses, 95 of them, as you know, on the church door in, the, in, in October, late October of 1517. Or that's the legend. Now, if you read the, one of the book reviews in the Outlook section of the Post last week, where they had that big spread on the Reformation, there was one author who questioned whether or not that actually happened and said it's kind of an urban legend. That's the kind of stuff that academics sometimes get their minds, you know, get worried about. That's also the way you get tenure. But, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, your bright idea. But I'll tell you this. I'll, t I t I I'll tell you this. There is another factoid about this that you need to know, and that is that in 1527, Martin Luther had a big party. A lot of beer there, by the way. Uh, you know, he'd really like to host a you know, raise a stein. Uh, and that party was, it appears to be a commemoration, dare I, celebration of what happened in 1517 and all of its effects. So that somebody who says, you know, that 1517 thing didn't happen has got them to explain this big party. Why did that party take place? It looks very much like a celebratory party. At any rate, he is said to have, let me choose my words carefully here, he is said to have posted those theses on the church door. And by the way, that was a very common thing. No big deal. It would be us almost like us posting on the Internet, you know, posting on the church door. By the way, there are two possible interpretations of what he was doing there. One, that he was demanding something. The other interpretation is, more an academic interpretation, he was just putting those theses out there like a doctoral student would to, to kind of uh, provoke a discussion. I happen to think it was more the former. I think he was demanding something, or at least strongly urging something. At any rate... He uh, posts those theses in um, 1517. By the way, the theses are, unless you're a real scholar of a certain type, really boring reading, in, 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 my, in my humble opinion, because they have to do with a technical issue, a technical issue, and that is indulgences. And if you don't know anything about indulgences, you're saying, what is going on here? Uh, indulgences, essentially, I'm going to be very maybe crudely Protestant here, the sale of uh, 
the sale of uh, certain forms of grace uh, that the church felt it was at its disposal uh, to parishioners. I mean, think about that as a, as a sort of revenue-generating source. Uh, you know, I mean, that'll, that'll build you more than a parking lot. Uh, that'll, that, of course, from the, the legend is that it helped to build a great cathedral, a great place of worship, St. Peter's. At any rate, um, Martin Luther, for reasons that I'm about to explain, was just scandalized by this common practice. Scandalized. That's part of the thing that's startling about it. Why is it startling? Because he was an Augustinian monk. He was... One of my teachers uh, said years ago, I never will forget this, he said he was the most obedient kind of monk you can imagine. He was deeply pious, and he was obedient in the way that only a very, very, very dedicated monk could be. You know, he was hyper-religious, hyper-devout, good son of the church. But he was offended, for reasons I'm about to get into, to the, uh, with, this, uh, with this practice. You know, it'd be like you, good Presbyterians, suddenly encountering something about the Presbyterian church that just strikes you as wrong. That's happened, by the way. A lot of the civil rights struggle was about that. You know, people grew up in a certain setting and they, this is just wrong. And boom, you've got, well, you know what, you know that story. Well, he for reasons I'm about to get into, was convinced that that was wrong. And the interesting thing about it, in the the theses and early writings of Luther from that point on, he's appealing for a church council. Now that, I want to stress, is the move of a reformer, not a revolutionary. Because there's no reason to think that he was just, you know, that was not a PR move. He was, in a, I would say, utterly naive way, saying to the ecclesiastical authorities that loomed above him, just, you know, like a titanic structure. Keep in mind, the Roman Catholic Church was the largest single institution in the known world. Owned better than a third of the land in Europe with all that hierarchy built up and pomp and all that. And he's little old Martin, you know, literally a nobody, and a fairly young nobody. So he appeals, church council. And by the way, the early mantra of all of those Protestants, this is a very important thing for Protestants to understand, the early mantra of all of those Protestants was a reformist one. We want a church council. We want a church council to talk this matter. Can't we talk this thing through? And they didn't get it. Every single one of them got kicked out. Boom. Excommunication. Why? Because when they were told, no, 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 just shut up. I'm putting it too bluntly here, but sit down, shut up. Uh, they were refusing to do that. And one thing leads to another pretty quickly, and they're out, branded as heretics. So I, wa I want to stress at the outside, the Protestant Reformation, as we think of it, as a kind of reconstitution of the very meaning of the faith, as not just the institution, but the very meaning of the faith, was not intended it was not intended. It happened. And it happened because of the play of events. That's why I'm a little 
personally a little uneasy with the use of the, even though it's a wonderful iconic image, I'm a little uneasy with treating 1517 as the point of departure for the Protestant Reformation. Because I think of the Protestant Reformation as a, as I've just indicated, a reconstitution, a reinvention of the Christian religion. That's why it's so revolutionary, in effect, in its, in its consequences. Breaking down what was, rebuilding on a, new, on a new foundation. Now, how did that happen? It happened because Martin Luther... I want to say, want to say let me first give a political answer to that and then a theological answer. How did that happen? A political answer and then a theological answer. Martin Luther, within a period of about five years, became, from up to that point, he was a monk, he was a learned monk, he was a teacher, he became a teacher of theology, he was a learned young guy in the, in the Augustinian order, known in a very small circle as a good teacher, as a good scholar, but that was all. You know, that's why from the, from the point of view of ecclesiastical authorities, who is this pipsqueak? I mean, just, just you know, you know. In my world, it would be a very junior graduate student, you know, a very junior. Who is this person, you know? And keep in mind, it's not just a local struggle. It's very quickly something much, much bigger. The political answer to how it happens is, is, is the following. There had been, for at least two centuries, at least two centuries, going back to the 1400s, even 1300s, there had been people who had been agitating along these lines. It wasn't like Martin Luther just woke up one day and said, ah, I mean, he did, but he was building upon a whole tradition. Wycliffe, Huss, you know, these people, come. some of them lost their lives. Some of them heroic figures from my point of view. And they typically were burned at the stake, just to sort of complete the picture here. They typically were burned at the stake. That was, when you think about it, from the, shall we say, the pure principle point of view, a kind of nice outcome for somebody who's, doomed, who's going to hell. You know, these heretics, these heretics, these people who insist on propounding ideas which are false, which are subversive, well, their just reward, in a sense, is being burned at the stake because we know where they're going. They were without exception, suppressed in that way. And there was a tradition by that point that if you stuck your neck out in that way, that was a likely outcome, especially if you pressed the issue and didn't say, okay, I'm... And by the way, I hope I understand in saying that, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that Protestants are better people I'm saying in the flow of events, I mean, we have our own horror stories to tell, but in this particular story, the things as things evolve, there's a lot of, what, persecution that goes on in, in anticipation of the Reformation. And then the Reformation happens, and the obvious question is, how could it possibly be the case that Martin Luther, unlike people who were every bit as devout, every bit as strong-willed in centuries past, they just, they, they, they fade so much that you really have to be a, a scholar of the period in order to understand who they were and what they did. Huss, for example. Huss is an enormously important figure, but who's heard of Huss? You know, certainly this, you know, this is not the Hussite church. You know, this is the Presbyterian church, and it flows from, well, 
Calvin and you know all the rest. So how did how did how why was Martin Luther so different? Here's the political answer. Two points. Number one, he got political protection. And let us just disabuse ourselves of any notion that you can have separation of church and state at that time. Please absorb that fact. The notion of separation of church and state doesn't even... The only people who, who have any thought of that are the Anabaptists. I'll get to that next week. They are, by and large, a very marginal force. Partly because of this anti-political thing, everybody else is trying to grab for the state and use the state for religious purposes. Martin Luther gets political protection. He's got prince. He's got a prince in particular, one prince in particular, his prince, as it turns out, who's proud of him. By the way, this prince, the one I'm talking about, doesn't even convert to the Protestant cause. He just likes Martin Luther and thinks he's, you know, he's a, he's a he, well, he's respectful of Martin Luther, I guess, and anxious to protect him. And he kidnaps Martin Luther at a very dangerous moment, puts him in a castle and says, stay there, Martin. I, I think for once Martin accepted authority. <laughs> and and it, was, it, was, it was a good thing because otherwise he would have been, well, he would have been a dead man. So that's the first thing. But the other thing is, and this is my great theme in this whole series of talks. Keep in mind, Gutenberg Bible, mid-1400s. Mid, uh, 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 and it takes about, and just think about our, the parallel, it takes about 60, 70 years for it to really get to become important to people. They're, they're experimenting with different types of type and how to use the type and so forth and different kinds of paper and all the rest. But in the latter part of the 15th century, on into the 16th century, historians of this period tell us there began to develop a kind of appetite for literacy, an appetite for a literary culture. There had always been people who read books, but they were a tiny little number compared. Ordinary people, meaning above all kind of middle class people like the people in this room, began to kind of get interested in the possibility of having access to the printed word themselves. And some of them began to literally in this period learn to read. They hadn't really learned to read. Business people, for example, hadn't really learned to read in any serious way. So at the time of the Reformation, there's a sort of appetite for literacy beginning to develop. And in certain circles, it's kind of the cool thing, you know, to be able to read, read. And I think I'm absolutely convinced that part of the Protestant Reformation, part of the reason it succeeds is that it's a kind of response to that which is constructive. Not repressive, but constructive. You can just imagine, if you want to read, and you want to sort of have, be a part of that culture, you want to own books yourself, and here are people who come along and say, not only it's okay, but it's really essential to your faith that you do that. Wow. Boom. Now, Martin Luther... I'm winding up a long time to throw this punch, and here it comes. Martin Luther, Martin Luther becomes, within a period of about five years, a folk hero from being a nobody. And by a folk hero, I mean the following. He became, well, today we would say his, his sort of ideas, and to some extent his image, went viral. How did that happen? Well, he, uh, the 95 Theses, were printed up as pamphlets. And not only that, but translated into several languages. So you could be in Paris and have access to 
these, in, these 95 theses. And you sort of get in conversation with that. You know, you show this. And by the way, it's not always easy. It could be a scary thing to do, but you pass it quietly to your friends, you know. You know, have you seen this, this Luther thing? What do you think about that Luther thing? People start in Amsterdam and London and Cambridge and even in Lisbon, believe it or not, in all these different places. They're getting this idea. And then Luther, and this is the theme of that book, Brand Luther, at least the author credits him with this, sort of sensing, ah, that's a very good thing to do. We ought to turn out more stuff that can be printed. And Luther alone, and very quickly people who follow him, become a kind of sort of engine of producing stuff that can be printed and turned into popular publications. Thousands and thousands and thousands of publications flood Europe with this Protestant thing. And they range all the way from cartoons, I kid you not, just cartoons for people who literally can't read, but they can sort of get the point from, you know, a good, like a political cartoon, all the way to tomes, big, thick books, and everything in between. And by the way, printing becomes one of the most popular enterprises, if you're a business person, one of the most popular enterprises in Western Europe for Protestants. Geneva, for example, when Calvin's there overnight, becomes very quickly, all these printing houses emerge. And I'll get to Calvin later, but Calvin is turning out stuff almost as fast as he can do it in order to give them stuff to write, to use. And before long, there's this sort of, it sort of snowballs. Well, give us more, give us more. That's how Martin Luther becomes, in addition to sort of, you might say, the power of his ideas, the magnetism of his ideas, the magnetism of his ideas would have fallen on very, very rocky ground had it not been for the fact that there was all this sort of appetite for literacy developing. That's the political answer. How did, how did this thing flourish and ex literally explode? 1520s. Long before Calvin comes on the scene, you've already got this kind of explosion of interest in Reformation ideas. And by the way, it won't surprise you that once this began to happen, it divided people. It divided, it divided families. There are wonderful, well, wonderful, quote, in quotation marks, stories of whole families would split right down the middle. I mean, we all know this from our own sort of family histories over the years. You know, sometimes Thanksgiving is not the best meal because you've got to keep off those topics. Well, the Reformation was the topic then. Great question. For a while, the question was, are you on Team Luther or not? You know, people say, I'm on that team, you know, right here. And the others, of course, said, the Roman Catholics said, typically, are you a heretic? Are you really flirting with heresy here? Okay, so we've got, and by the way, Martin Luther, by the early 1520s, is a internationally recognized figure. So that in Paris... By the time John Calvin comes along, later generation, John Calvin, legal student, law student, comes along in Paris, and one of the things that happens to him is he encounters one of these sort of surges of Lutheran thinking, and he's asked, are you a Lutheran? And off you go. Now, that's within just a few years. Now, what's the theological reason why Luther reacted as he did? I'm going to make a statement here which a Protestant can make and I don't think any 
I don't think any Roman Catholic, at least any well-informed Roman Catholic, can make quite the same way. Even the Pope, who, by the way, has made some very, very interesting ecumenical gestures in this, in this uh, commemorative year, you know, goes to goes to Sweden, participates in a liturgy, a Lutheran liturgy, which is clearly commemorating the Reformation, gives a memorable sermon. But even the Pope, I think, could not say, here's, here's what I would say. And I think this is a test about whether or not you're, shall we say, a Protestant in the strict sense. I would say about the Protestant Reformation, it was a recovery of the gospel. Now, I assure you, in, if you're in a situation where you're talking with a Roman Catholic, them's fighting words. Because what it, what, it, what it implies is the following. The gospel had been lost, Right? That's a, I, I hope you see why that's a very offensive thing to say if, unless the Roman Catholic is very self-critical. And even then, probably they would want to nuance what I've just said. Francis, I think, would want to nuance it. And there, there was some, I think Francis' phrase is, new light was shown on. Well, that's a little different thing from saying the thing was in danger of being lost altogether. Now, what does that mean? Here is, in five minutes, a summary of probably the basis of 99% of the sermons you hear at Westminster. I've heard enough sermons at Westminster to know that they're pretty consistent and pretty orthodox, praise the Lord, on, on this particular point. Here it is. Martin Luther himself would say that. Martin Luther would say, and here's the way he would put it in reading the book of Romans, more broadly, in reading Paul's letters, I discovered something which I didn't know before. This is learned Martin Luther. Good son of the church would say that. And here's what he learned. And I don't see how it's can be construed. I've argued with Roman Catholics about this. I don't see how it can be construed as anything other than precisely what Romans says. Pardon me. And here it is. I do not earn my salvation. I do. A lot of Protestants, by the way, even though they say they believe this, they don't have a hard time believing it. You know. Well, what would be the alternative? Well, to earn your salvation through good works. If I just go on enough mission trips, if I just go on enough, go to enough session meetings, if I just teach Sunday school until, you know, I drop, uh, then, you know, I'm getting those points up there somewhere in the celestial scoreboard. I'm getting it. No. That's the Catholic view. I'm sorry. Nothing personal. That's, that's the Catholic view. Or at least that's what, let me rephrase it, that's what Luther thought the Catholic view, good son of the church, Martin Luther, that's what he thought. Why did he think that? Because he had been working at it personally for years. He had been struggling to win God's favor through all kinds of penitential acts. Indeed, if Eric Erickson's to believe, then this is a very controversial book, Young Man Luther, but Eric Erickson strongly suggested Martin was clinically off. He was so obsessed with sort of Winning his salvation in the eyes of God. To be worthy in the eyes of God. By the way, perfectly, perfectly legitimate concern. But Luther's conclusion, based upon reading Paul, 
you know, there's enough good biblical study going on at Westminster. You understand this. Based on reading Paul, you can't do that. Or rather, it just, you, you don't, you don't succeed would be the way to do it. By the way, I think that's a spiritually deep point. You know, there is a passage in Scripture which says, be perfect even as you're, you know. But the other side of the coin is when you actually look at the things that would require you to be perfect, if that were all that we had, I think it would be daunting. Love God with your whole heart, your whole mind. Love and nothing but devote. My guess is there are a lot of good people in this room. I think even they would say, well, my, my motives are mixed. And I have a hard time with them not being mixed. Now, Luther, struggling, you might say, with his own salvation, literally, in a kind of worried, anxious way, then reads this passage, several passages in Romans, and says the Romans and says the following: "Wow, wow, I got it all wrong. Salvation is the gift of God through faith. I am justified not by works, but by faith, not works, and it is given to me. This is the great." This is the theological legacy of the Reformation given to us freely by God. Now, to be sure, works are not unimportant, but they have a whole different logic. They are what we do in gratitude for what God gives us. No earning of salvation here. Now, think about this. This is a time when there's all this elaborate Roman Catholic penitential system. Going to Mass, confessions, indulgences, all this stuff, sort of layered upon layered upon layered, opportunities to do good works which are interpreted, I think even in the best, most sophisticated way, in a way that implies sort of doing the things that will enable you to be, for God to look favorably on you. You earn it. Luther said, that is not not the gospel. That is not the Christian gospel. Now, I hope you're sensing here. I'm trying to create a mood here. I hope you're sensing this is explosive stuff. This is really explosive stuff because basically he is saying, and this is what I meant by recovery of the gospel. This is reinvention of the very core message of Christianity. The very core message. A clear implication. I hope you understand why people were so offended by it on the other side. The implication is the Roman Catholic Church got it wrong. By the way, the other thing which is implied in this, and it quickly became evident, is, on what basis do you say this, Martin? Scripture. Are you suggesting that Scripture sometimes is over, somehow is over against the church? Of course. I mean, he didn't say it that quickly, but that's clearly where he was headed. Scripture is our standard on which to understand all things that matter in faith. And if the church is consistent with Scripture, as we understand it, fine, we follow the church. But if not, then what? Scripture is really used as the standard on the basis of which to judge the church. Now, right there is the foundation of what I like to characterize as the Protestant culture. And here's, here's why I say that. 
My guess is, I don't know, many of you, I don't, some of you, I know many of you I don't know at all. My guess is, unless you, well, let me just let me just start that sentence over again. If you're confronted with a moral problem, and you're thinking about it in a religious way, and I'm not saying that all the moral problems we confront, we do confront it in a religious way. Sometimes we just sort of stumble through it. But sometimes we do confront a moral problem. The Protestant impulse is to, is to go to Scripture, right? How many classes in this room, I don't know, I'm guessing countless classes, have been taught with that as the assumption? What does Scripture teach about abortion? What does Scripture teach about war? What does Scripture teach about... That's the Protestant move. It's not the Catholic move. Even post-Vatican II. Catholic move is to say, what does the church teach? What is the magisterium? The authoritative source of teaching. And if you get into a room with learned Catholics, say on just war or something, they will talk to you a lot about natural law and the teaching of the church and very little about Scripture unless some Protestant drags it in. Now just think about that. That's an enormous difference. That's like two different versions of Christianity. Now it flows out of this, shall we say, Luther move. So, how did the Reformation happen? It happened because Martin Luther, the first thing I'm going to say, this is why he's a prophetic figure, a giant in history in my opinion. Martin Luther, not only did he criticize the church and understand that there were abuses in the church that had to be corrected, that's the beginning, but the real core of it is that he went beyond that or went deeper into this theological reconstruction of the church. No, not the church. I refer to reconstruction of the very meaning of Christianity. I mean, that's revolutionary. You know, it's like a new physics. You know, it just it, it opens up a whole new way of thinking and being. That's that's Luther's great achievement. And by the way, all the people who come later, including Calvin, say Luther is our guide. Luther's our guy. Luther's the guy who opened the door, opened the window. Now, I want to talk literally with two-thirds of the time gone, about this topic of the gospel and freedom. The gospel and freedom is, uh, what I have to say about that is a summary of this wonderful little, it's really an essay, it's not very long, called The Freedom of the Christian, Freedom of the Christian Man. A little bit about the situation. 1520 is, in my judgment, the real beginning of the Reformation because it's in that year that Martin Luther gets kicked out. Up to that point, he's a good reformer. 1520 comes, and by the way, here's the way it plays out. He is brought before various tribunals. You know that story. He's brought, you know, and he's challenged, you know, theological uh, minds probably, certainly more recognized to be more prominent, more distinguished than he, confront him and with civil authorities there, and you can see what that implies. And that's where he eventually makes that famous statement, here I stand, I can do no other, and in effect says, I'm not going to give up these points. I'm not going to tell you that the Roman Catholic teaching on faith and works is right. I don't believe that. I can't do that. Now, let me just say parenthetically, that's the kind of person, and they're rare in my opinion, who makes a revolution. 
most people, most of us, I think, when confronted with the severity of what he was facing, I mean, he was going up against the whole established, centuries-long sort of understanding of things. And he's basically saying, no, 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 they're, they're all wrong. Not all of them, but most of them are wrong. When somebody does that, it requires not just courage, but almost irrational commitment to principle. You know? I'm sorry, I just can't do that. You're What you're asking me, I can't do that. And not only that, but he redoubles his position. He goes, and by the way, there's one other thing I have to say. That's... Well, I think it's you know one way of talking about Luther is Luther is kind of like an Old Testament prophet in the in the best sense, you know, just thus saith the Lord. Now, in that year, that's when he gets kidnapped. You know, somebody says, Martin, if you don't, I realize you can't you can't shut up and you can't retract and so forth, but then you better hide for a while, and he he does. But in that hiding. He starts writing, scribbling, as they say, scribbling, scribbling. And that's when the whole business about Brand Luther begins to take off. He writes a series of essays, which are, by the way, Luther was not, and I'll make a point of this when we come to Calvin, Luther was not a systematic thinker. Calvin was. That's the big difference. Uh, Luther was not a systematic thinker. He kind of responded in his writing sort of the way a lot of people do, episodically to things. I need to speak about this? Okay. I need to speak about that? Okay. It's in that context that he writes this famous Freedom of the Christian Man. He also writes a marvelous essay, which is kind of a companion to that. I'm not going to go into that here, called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. <laughs> Babylonian Captivity of the Church. I mean, talk about a snotty. I mean, the imagery is, you know, Babylonian Captivity of the Church. Ugh. Uh, and then an appeal, by the way. Another thing he does in those, in those essays is to write an appeal to the German princes. It's not like, all right, and Knox does the same thing in Scotland. All right, now we're getting, this, you know, we're getting a real conflict here. Which side are you on, German princes? And a lot of them signed on. So you've got now the basis of a real forward march politically with the authority of Civil authorities, there's no, there's no unified German nation at that point. Now, it's in that setting that he writes The Freedom of the Christian Man, which is a pamphlet that just took off like, I'm going to use an old-fashioned phrase here, hotcakes. You know, just boom. It just explodes. People read it everywhere. And as I said, to this day, it has become, for Roman Catholics, a kind of symbol of what Protestants are like. The basis of the piece, The Freedom of the Christian Man, The Freedom of the Christian, is a very creative analogy between the situation Paul confronted in relation to the Jewish law, Jewish tradition, when he was writing those epistles, and the situation that they hadn't Called, weren't called yet Protestants, but our, our side, Luther would say, the, the situation our side faced with respect to the Roman Catholic Church. Let me say that again. Very creative analogy. 
He's suggesting there's some parallel between the situation that Paul and the early Christians, if I can put it that way, faced in relation to Jewish law, Jewish tradition, and the situation that Protestants face in relation to this mammoth thing called Roman Catholicism. Now let me make this observation. I don't think the New Testament has all that much to say about freedom. That's sometimes shocking to people, especially in this country, you know, where we place an enormous value upon freedom of a certain kind in our politics and otherwise. There are passages in the New Testament that do talk about freedom, but it's not usually the freedom as we think about it. You know, freedom as we think about it is what political thinkers sometimes characterize as negative freedom, as being left alone. Get your mitts off of me. I have a right to do what I want to do. Now, and I think that's the most common understanding. You know, a lot of constitutional rights are understood that way. You know, don't control this. Don't control that. Don't, etc. Freedom is absence of control. So that I, as an autonomous agent, can do... Now, I don't think there's very much of that in the New Testament. Indeed, I want to suggest it's almost the opposite. It's almost in the New Testament the, 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 the Christian life is held out to be a life of following and being a disciple, after all. Hmm? Being a disciple. Doing what God intended you to do. I hope you see, at the very least, they're not quite the same idea. The best place, if you want to look up this, and it's a fascinating thing to do, the best place to look up this whole, or consult on this topic, is the book of Galatians. Because it's in the book of Galatians, above all, that Paul talks about liberty. And the, he comes close to talking about the liberty of the Christian man, Paul. But it's not a big theme in Paul. Paul, for the most part, is, as I was talking about just a second ago, is talking about the Christian life as a life of obedience. Think about Jesus. Obedience, even to the cross. Not doing what he wants to do, doing what his duty is, in a sense, etc., so it's a little startling, and from the Roman Catholic point of view, this is see, this is the way they are, those people. It's a little startling to have this theme held up by Paul or, or by Luther as a kind of central Christian idea. Indeed, in this piece, he almost suggests that freedom is what defines the Christian man. Freedom is what defines the Christian. What's he talking about? Well, here comes the key. He says, just as Paul thought that the follower of Jesus was liberated from all that complicated Jewish stuff, we are liberated from all of this Catholic stuff. You follow what I'm saying? And, and there's no doubt that there's a lot of that in Paul. You know, the Jews have to do this, and the Jews have to do that, and the Jews have to... But we're free of that, right? Hmm? Now, I hope you see, this is a pretty, dare I say, if I were grading a student's paper, I would say slick move. You know, this is a pretty slick, or another nicer way to put it would be to say creative move. You know, Paul, he, so he's comparing all that Jewish law, or he's, he's comparing Roman Catholic uh, sort of, 
obligations that, that the average parishioner feels to the law, the Jewish law, and saying, and note what's implied here, the gospel liberates us from both. The gospel liberates us from both. So that we don't have to do all that Catholic stuff. All we have to be is good what? Christ, good Christians, that's right. Good Christians. And, of course, the next step is, and he actually says this, and read the Bible for ourselves and figure out what that means. You know? Read the Bible for yourself. Don't consult some priest. Just read the Bible for yourself. See what, see what, you'll, you'll get it. You'll get it. He even says at one point, it's not complicated. It's not complicated. It's not complicated, you know. Just read the Bible for yourself and then what? You will get what you need, what you need to get and all of that complicated stuff, forget it. Now, he then goes on to say, it's a marvelous little twist of phrase. He says, the good Christian is free of all to be the servant of all. You know, free of all to be the servant of all. Free, of all, free, of all, free from all that stuff. Well, I, I want to just say, I hope you're getting this, it's like putting a stick of dynamite under a whole elaborate system of piety and belief. Roman Catholics have been building this up for centuries and centuries and centuries, elaborate edifice. And here comes Martin and just sticks that little, you know, in there. And by the way, the more people read this, the more people think about it, the more they say, hey, I think I'm on Luther's team. You can imagine for all kinds of reasons, some elevated and some not so elevated. So, Freedom of the Christian man becomes, and by the way, Martin Luther is not pitching here. Don't think of him as somebody who's you know, trying to make a political campaign or something. He's just speaking from the heart, I think it's fair to say. He's speaking from the heart in an explosive way. And by the way, I hope you see, once you get something, something so blatantly revolutionary out there, why he's going to be a kind of rock star among some, and others are just going to be enraged by him. Arrest that guy. Now, having said all that, with, what, five minutes ago, let me add two other cru crucial parts of this. One of them leads directly into my theme for next week. By 15, he, published, he publishes that in 1520. By 1523, a good part of the People who can read and write, and let me stress, it's no, never more in that century than 20%. Let me stress, it's not everybody. It's no more than 20% of the population at the end of the, of the century. But you go from, what, 3% to 20%, that's a big growth. And it's heavily concentrated among people who identify with this Protestant cause. Part of identifying with the Protestant cause is, for obvious reasons, learning how to read and write. Women and men as well. Or men and women as well, let me stress. Now, Something that happens that changes the Luther narrative dramatically. And that is, a lot of people have the following view. Well, if we're free of all that Roman Catholic stuff, maybe we're free of a lot of other things as well. We've got all these authority figures. And keep in mind, the large percentage of the population are peasants. We have all these burdens imposed upon us. We have to scrape and bow before all these people. We're overtaxed, we're, all this kind of stuff. Maybe we're free of all of that and we can chuck it all. 
So you get manifestos. I kid you not. Within a couple of years, manifestos, you know, published on one page, peasant demands of their lords based upon what Martin Luther has said. If we're free of all of this stuff, then what we need to do is reorganize everything, change the property laws, uh, change the marriage laws, change, change all kinds of things in order to, so that people can more expansively live out freely their Christian lives. That, predictably, does not sit well with some of the people in authority. And very quickly, it leads to, well, here's what it leads to what's called the Peasants' Rebellion. It's an armed rebellion because these peasants begin organized. They're, you know, they're following this kind of exciting idea of Christian freedom and so forth. They're organizing. They're, they're appealing to their Lord. They're saying, we want these changes. And the Lord says, I don't think so. You know. And then very quickly, the pitchforks come out. It's a populist revolution. It is. You may not have heard this before, but historians now characterize the peasant rebellion of the mid-1520s as the most expansive rebellion, popular rebellion, until the French Revolution. Huge, hundreds of thousands of people are involved in this bloody uprising. They take over monasteries, they take over uh, castles, they, and, and, and in some cases... They're so angry at the people who are in authority off of their heads. And Martin Luther's reaction to this is hor to be horrified. That's not what I had in mind. That's not what I meant. Now, who knew what he meant about this? And then he said very quickly in his writing on the subject, and his writing sort of does a U-turn, the writing is the following. This is spiritual. It's not political. It's freedom stuff. It's not political. It's not, it, hasn't, it hasn't anything to do with property rights or who governs the country. Or that. No, everybody should stay in his place politically and socially and so forth. Keep being a peasant. Keep working the land. But at the same time, in your heart, think of yourself as free. Well, what then happened, or as this played out, Martin Luther appeals to the civil authorities to suppress this rebellion. Put it down. It is the work of the devil. He is about as harsh as you can get. The same guy who was talking about Christian freedom three or four years later is talking about those vermin. Actually, that's the phrase. Those vermin who are rising up violently against the authority that God has put in place. They need to be suppressed by whatever means are necessary. And boy, they were. Martin Luther turns, therefore, dramatically in a conservative direction. From the 1520s until his death, two decades later, he's very conservative about a lot of things, especially social, political issues. One of the big separations between Luther and Calvin on these, on these matters. Now, one final thought. That's not what the... I'm guessing, I haven't decided on a class, but I don't think that's what the theology class at Georgetown teaches. I don't think they tell that part of the story. Because, and I have had conversations with good Jesuit friends about this, why, I would say, do you hold up freedom of the Christian as sort of the symbol, if the one thing that's read 
in trying to capture the Protestant ethos. That's the, that's the phrase they sometimes use, the Protestant ethos. And the answer is this. That's what Protestants are like. They are independent-minded, individualistic, disrespectful of authority. And even though Luther himself made a U-turn, shall we say, that's irrelevant for our purposes. If you want to get the spirit, if you want to know what Protestants are like, and when I start to push back, the answer is, well, just look at all of these churches. Just look at them. They keep proliferating. There are more and more and more Protestant churches. And what do they express? They reflect a kind of, their words, rebellious ethos. You know, these Protestants, they're constantly wanting to do it a different way, rebelling against, etc. So that's, and of course the implication is, it all started back there in 1520 when Martin said, freedom of the Christian man. Now, believe it or not, I think I've got maybe five minutes of questions, Todd. Who's in charge? David's in charge. Where's David? Technically, it's the time we're over. I'll entertain questions for five minutes, and I'll, I'll stop after that. Or comments, rebuttals, whatever. Floor's open. Yes. Um, when you were mentioning that there was really virtually no separation of churches. Yes, ma'am. Yes, big, big part of it. And, there, and there's a sense, the farther north you, north you go in Europe, that we're being milked for a project, say St. Peter's, which is fundamentally southern. So there's that, there's that dynamic going on. And then they say that. They say that pretty openly. You know, the, the, the church is using us almost parasitically. So there's a lot. And then there's a growing, it's just beginning to emerge, national idea. You know, this is this is sort of the cusp, the early cusp of what eventually will become national identity. We Germans. And by the way, very important part of this story. I'll talk about it as we go all go along. Go along. The emergence of literacy and the translation of all these well, translation the Bible and everything else into the vernacular is an enormous uh, uh, sort of support for national identity and national uh, uh, aspirations. Just think about that. If you can read the Bible in English as opposed to Latin, well, you're on your way to thinking of us over here as people who are people of one kind. The Roman Catholic Church fought that, resisted that, on the grounds that the Christian religion should be universal. It should not cultivate these, shall we say, particular identities. Well, vernacular means particular. And it just it powerfully promoted the nationalist impulse. That's a very good question. Yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you might say there's a there's a well again this is not original but me this is lots of people have said 
Catholicism works very well with a kind of two-tiered understanding of spiritual responsibility and discipline. There's a, you might say, for spiritual athletes, there is the monastery. And for lay people, there's a different version, which is less rigorous, but still the same logic in just the way you're suggesting. So, but, but if, you're, you know, if you're sort of super committed to this and desirous of doing it in a kind of way that takes up all of your time and energy. I mean, after all, the life in a monastery is a lot about prayer. It's a lot about just devoting yourself to higher things, full stop. Now, the, for, for many people, you can't do that. You've got to earn a living. I mean, part of that logic is being relieved of earning a living in the conventional sense in order to be able to focus single-minded. But you're absolutely right. That's exactly what went on. And by the way, another very important part of the story of the prehistory of the Reformation is whenever you get a strong reform impulse. You know, you've listed a few. One of, the, one of the most constructive responses, rather than shut up, is the following. Well, go create an order. Go create a order of this or order of that, which is designed what? In a kind of capsule way to realize whatever reform you're trying to, to seek. A, a lot of the inspiration for religious orders comes from that. Even the one that happens at the time of the Reformation, I'll briefly talk about this in the next couple of weeks, the Jesuits. The Jesuits are the ones who emerge in the time of the Reformation, and they're another reform sort of movement that the Roman Catholic Church blesses but it's for a very select group of people, in contrast to this kind of Protestant universal thing. I think we're out of time. See you next week.